This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Hal Kos, a host of the channel, and today I'll be talking to Christina Marie Darling about her new book, Daylight Has Already Come. Hi, Christina, and welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you so much for hosting me. It's great to have you here. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us about how you came to write poetry to begin with and what it means for you to be writing poetry these days. Yeah, that's a great question. So my background is actually more as a scholar. Um, I did a master's in continental philosophy at the University of Missouri. I also did an advanced degree in cultural studies. And from there, I went on to do a doctorate in poetry criticism at SUNY Buffalo, which is kind of known as a theory school. And what, I, what really drew me to poetry, even though I was kind of studying this more formal literary criticism, was that the potential for performative language when making a theoretical or scholarly point is so underrated. I think that you know, if you use poetry as a kind of tool to make a scholarly argument, you can make that argument in a more visceral and impactful way. And so I began writing poems and footnotes, poems in the guise of glossaries, um, poems using all of these kinds of found academic forms. And what I discovered about this um, that got me really excited was that it really began to carve a space for women's lived experience and aestheticized language and all of these things that are normally not part of literary criticism that kind of began to make a space for them. And for me, this was, you know, so exciting because scholarly writing is predicated mostly on exclusions, right? You're not allowed to use autobiography. You're not allowed to Um, use metaphor or all of these more poetic tools. So I started to get really excited about that kind of interstitial space between the creative and the critical. And so when I embarked on Daylight Has Already Come, 
I was particularly interested in poetry and performative language as a kind of tool for intervention into scholarly discourse, because I noticed um, throughout all of Shakespeare's tragedies, um, there's so much violence against women. And that is kind of glossed over or overlooked in a lot of the kind of critical reception of these plays. And so I, I was really excited by especially postmodern forms and the opportunity to use poetry as a way of redirecting the focus of scholarly attention and making um, readers face or attend to something that they might have overlooked, something that might have been buried in so much prose. Wonderful. Yeah. And so for you, um, I guess across your career, you've always kind of been moving between, let's say, more scholar, scholarly kind of straight uh, critical texts, no, and um, and poetry collections. Do you feel as if um, that that moving in between it, it, it itself energizes the writing you're doing, or do you sometimes um, kind of want to uh, move deeper into one of the one of the two forms, or is it about this dialogue between between the the two types of writing, if we like? Yeah, that's such an insightful question. And for me, it's always about the dialogue or the reciprocity. Um, and I think it's really important to kind of be attentive to that dialogue because in so many academic departments, there is kind of a sharp divide between creative and critical practice. And what I've found is poets can learn from scholars and vice versa. And I think that there needs to be so much more opportunity for that. And, you know, when I kind of dive deeper into the scholarly writing, um, what I love to do is kind of experiment with the forms of scholarly discourse. And so I've been really intrigued by this notion of lyric criticism um, where the beauty of the language is kind of brought to bear on a theoretical or scholarly point or claim that's being made. So think of someone like Julia Kristeva um, and her book Black Sun. She creates this, you know, compelling aesthetics and all the while she's using metaphor, she's using lyrical language, she's using, um, you know, masquerade, citation, all of these really creative techniques to put forward a new, a new theory of aesthetics. And so that's something that I've really emulated in a lot of my scholarly writing. I'm also very intrigued by the notion of collaborative criticism as well. And I like to, um, as Matthew Rohrer, the poet, would say, have unwitting collaborators. Um, so I'll bring in found language and kind of respond to that in a critical um, or scholarly way. And um, yeah, I, I think that it's, it really is all about breaking down those boundaries between types of, of language and types of writing and ways of seeing the world. Because after all, you know, the forms of scholarly discourse, poetic discourse, whatever it is, they ultimately limit what is possible within them. Um, you can't really, there are things you can't say in a traditional scholarly paper. There are things you can't say in a sonnet. Um, so when you begin to question or interrogate those forms, it makes possible, you know, the creation of new knowledge. And for me, that's what's most exciting 
about working at this kind of um, intersection of creative and critical practice. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, the ways you can't say things uh, are different in the different forms as well. So even the kind of negativity that you're that you're that you're confronting across the different forms varies. Um, turning to the book now, so so daylight has already come is composed from four collections written over six years. Um, and I wanted to ask you, how was the process of pulling together a single book from that body of work? And in particular, were there any surprises for you during that process of, of, of composition? Yeah, that's so, that's so interesting to think about. And it was certainly a challenge because the collection really does span many different kind of poetic techniques from footnotes to erasure to prose poetry to um, text and image projects. And so, you know, finding a kind of common thread to connect everything and make it cohere was certainly the biggest challenge I faced as the writer. Um, but one thing that, you know, really surprised me as I went through my body of work is that you know, writers always write from the subconscious, and so they're not always wholly aware of their obsessions and the kind of images and leitmotifs that they return to over and over again. And for me, this question of um, violence, you know, as it pertains to, you know, desire kept coming up. And so I really um, was really excited to interrogate that and to see also how many different styles of writing could be brought to bear on the same kind of theoretical or, um, you know, critical questions. So, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see, you know, given that, that obsession, right, with this question of violence and desire, um, how all of these different modes and techniques could maybe reveal some different facet or aspect of that question. Um, but yeah, the book definitely spans other themes as well. Uh, the opening piece uh, of the book is actually an erasure of Elaine Starry's um, The Body in Pain. I was so inspired by Yetta Morrison's procedural erasures. She has a wonderful book called Darkness, which um, is an erasure of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And what she does is so genius she actually erases people from Heart of Darkness. And um, yeah, what she reveals is the stunning eco-poetics. So I was really excited in working on this erasure of Elaine Starry to erase pain from the book, um, to think about erasure and postmodern forms as a kind of intervention or and excavation. So yeah, it definitely is multifaceted in that way. There's a lot of um, kind of dialogue with other literary texts. But yeah, that question of, you know, violence, gendered violence, desire, um, was definitely a thread that kind of united everything. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I wanted to ask you, in particular, the, the, the first book, No um, Fortress, and those techniques of erasure, which seem absolutely connected, as you said, to, you know, I guess, violence as a kind of crisis of or in representation, no? and, what, and what violence does to our attempts to kind of represent 
narrative. Um, so could you talk a bit more about the, the form of that first book? So in the, in the first part, we have the, the, the field, if you like, of the blank page, no? Um, and it seems kind of oblique. It seems kind of a turning away from insight, but at the same time, the language is often painfully direct. And then in the second part of the book, um, we have the white space followed by uh, a series of footnotes. And again, this for me actually heightens the sense at which we're kind of cleaning a narrative no so so the narrative is obviously withheld or suspended or subverted i don't know how you would put it um but it's also really really present so i was just wondering if you could talk us through uh fortresses from 2014 i think um the the, the formal decisions that went into um uh leaving us that that, that blank space on the page yeah, that's such an interesting question. And um, I think that poems are visual, oftentimes, even when we don't realize it. And in thinking about how I was going to use the page as a kind of canvas or visual field, I was really inspired by Myung Mi Kim, um, her teachings on paratextual spaces in poetry. She really um, kind of foregrounds this idea that you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure on the main text um, to be profound, to make some great claim. There's just a lot of pressure and expectation attached to the main text. So when you get to those paratextual spaces like footnotes, endnotes, um, you know, they're kind of thought as secondary or ancillary to the main text. So there's not as much pressure on them in terms of readerly expectation. And as a result, those paratextual spaces are more conducive to artistic risk um, and to, you know, experimentation, to innovation in language. And so I was really excited to begin exploring um, what was possible in these kind of spaces around or outside of the main text. And so when I was working on this, I really wanted also to kind of build on that idea of erasure, uh, but also to think of like, you know, erasure and self, the, the relationship between erasure and self-erasure. Um, so when does erasure in poetry become an act of aggression towards someone or another text? When does it become um, an, act of, an act of intervention or collaboration? When does erasure become a kind of act of self-violence? And so that theme of erasure definitely informed a lot of the kind of technical or stylistic choices throughout that book. Great, thank you. Um, and moving on now to uh, Women and Ghosts, which is the, the, the second collection that makes up part of um, uh, Daylight Has Already Come. Um, You've mentioned already, uh, we've touched on this a little bit, but could you tell me about the relationship between the collection and uh, Shakespeare's text? So we have Juliet, Cleopatra, Ophelia. Um, is this a, a rereading, a revision, a kind of reparative gesture, an appropriation, a deconstruction, all of them, none of them? What, um, what about those texts um, drew you in and, and what were you trying to do with them throughout uh, Women and Ghosts? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. And I would certainly say all of the above. Um, I was really intrigued by, you know, the ways that we kind of tend to elevate certain canonical texts and overlook their incredible flaws. Um, you know, just like Yetta Morrison did her kind of intervention with Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and kind of foregrounded the role of the natural world and how it's exploited and pillaged um, throughout the text. I think that, you know, with Shakespeare, we tend to kind of overlook or gloss over this these, these horrible acts of violence against women, but it's also something that, it reveals something about culture in a way. So the fact that these kinds of acts of violence are normalized, that we don't really, um, you know, approach them with shock or, you know, a desire to intervene in terms of the scholarly interpretation um, was really interesting and kind of revealing to me. So I wanted to use experimental forms, um, for example, erasure, grayscale, um, the lyric essay, footnoted text, footnoted erasures, um, to kind of, you know, show the reader in a more visceral way than a scholarly text ever could, just um, just how just how you know flawed these canonical texts are, and I think that using the page as a kind of canvas or visual field is something that's not really fair game in scholarship, but thankfully it is in poetry, um, and so by having footnoted texts um, that kind of allow the historical texts to coexist with a kind of modern counterpart, it reveals the fact that history is kind of circular and it's kind of recursive and these themes of violence and these kinds of um, acts against women, they get repeated over and over again because no one um, really attends to it, you know, in, in these cultural texts, nobody really faces um, the flaws in the literary canon. And so I really wanted to use these kinds of forms and experimentations with form as a way to redirect the focus of scholarly energy, uh, but also to bring to light something that has been buried in so much prose. Because after all, you know, a, an experimental text, a postmodern text, a lot of times is a kind of excavation of influences of, you know, a, a literary inheritance. And so I did think of, you know, all of these erasures and footnoted texts as a way of bringing something to light that kind of has been buried in so much um, cultural and critical discourse. Yeah, and I mean, for me, that really speaks to what you were saying before also about, um, if we like, the sort of freedom, no, of paratextual spaces. So it's like there's less pressure, no, so you can be more um, incisive and insightful um, uh, if uh, you kind of create a space that comes at the text more obliquely. Because we should say really that in women and ghosts and in this book um shakespeare's texts are really present it's not that they're not there i mean uh they're they're on the page they're kind of written over they're they're pulled apart they're 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 literally erased in places um and obviously um there there, there has been a lot of critical work done say on um 
gender dynamics or, or violence in Shakespeare's text, but there's something about um, the, uh, the the space that you manage to create around the text, which you can then comment from, which which works which works really powerfully. Have you worked in um, other contexts or other texts with uh, with texts that are so canonical? I mean, I'm just wondering about the kind of um, you know how how much those texts are revered um, culturally, and 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 what it means to 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 go to them to to try and find something new. Um, yeah, or maybe that's not at all how you were thinking about it when you were approaching the work. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about because I actually worked on another project um, that kind of erased and dismantled Petrarch's sonnets. Um, so thinking of the two, like, you know, grandfathers of the sonnet, it's Shakespeare and Petrarch. So I've erased both of them. I don't know what that says about me. Um, but yeah, the, the book I worked on, it was called Petrarchan, and it came out with Blazebox. And what I did was I took the titles of all of Petrarch's poetry collections, and, you know, when you... So those were the chapter titles. When you turn the page and go into the chapter, it's just footnotes. And the footnotes are narrated from Laura's perspective. And when you get to the back of the book, there are erasures of Petrarch's sonnets that are recast from Laura's perspective as well. And they're formatted like um, Anne Parsons' Fragments of Sappho. So another way that in you know experimental texts, visual presentation shapes meaning ultimately um, but i was really intrigued by you know the potential again for these kinds of postmodern or experimental forms to offer a space for intervention or corrective gestures into a literary canon that maybe is outdated in some ways or that we've maybe moved beyond um, from a cultural perspective so you know thinking about laura as this woman that's always based upon and, um, you know, never has the opportunity to speak for herself. I was really excited by postmodern forms as a vehicle for both critique of those gender dynamics, right? She's only relegated to the paratextual spaces, but at the same time, an opportunity for intervention for us to be able to see her perspective and um, to reverse ultimately the power dynamics of the source text. Uh, by era literally erasing Petrarch's perspective and excavating Laura's. Uh, I think that, yeah, these postmodern forms like erasure and found forms or stolen forms like footnotes, it's a powerful opportunity for really provocative reversals as well. Wonderful, thanks. Um... If we move on now to, to Dark Horse, which is the, the third collection, and also Angel of the North, the, the fourth one, um, I wanted to ask you about the interplay of different media and genres also in the, in the book. So Dark Horse is a collection that draws on film. There's a, there's a line, I think, from quite early on, which is the, the first scene was nearly untranslatable from one of the poems that's titled Sad Film. No, um, So there's film, essay, memoir, and then in Angel of the North, we have photography also. Um, and that also seems to me a thread that runs through the book, but then 
comes particularly to the fore in the two most recent or more, more recent um, collections. Um, are you translating from these media? And if so, kind of what's lost or what resistance is there to that process? Um, and yeah, what is the relationship between, um, in particular, I think, the kind of references to visual material in those two uh, in those two collections and and the visual lay of the page, which we've also already touched on. Yeah, that's a good question. So with Dark Horse, um, I actually wrote these poems when I was in the low residency MFA at NYU Paris. And while I was doing my MFA, I really, I didn't want to be confined to one place. So I residency hopped. I went from um, literary arts fellowship to literary arts fellowship and just traveled the world. And it was such an, such an enriching experience from my perspective for the writing because, you know, I, I went to Hawthorne Castle in Scotland. I went to the American Academy in Rome several times. I went to Yaddo. And in addition to being able to interface with so many artists, you know, oftentimes outside of and beyond my chosen discipline, I also got to you know, have this experience for the first time in my life of cultural otherness and, you know, not knowing the language. And so when you don't know the language, you can't communicate, like oftentimes the visual takes on like this new importance or new significance. And so that was definitely something that informed um, the poems in Dark Horse. And also, you know, when you don't speak the language, you know, the silences take on a new weight. And so those silences began to inhabit the poems, whether in the form of elided narrative context or in the form of white space. I became really intrigued by the many types and gradations of silence um, during this time period and just got really interested in the different types of work that silence could do in a poem. Um, oftentimes, silence tends to get generalized about by scholars of poetry. Uh, but I think that, you know, silence can take so many different forms in a poem, ranging from, you know, a lighted narrative context, um, you know, the space literally between words or sentences, white space, transitions, abrupt transitions that maybe aren't explained, juxtapositions. Um, so I was really intrigued by, you know, ways different types of silence could coexist and complicate one another within a poem. And um, yeah, oftentimes that does become really visual in terms of the page and, um, you know, how things are laid out in terms of the form of the poem. But with... Um, with Angel of the North, those were actually my photographs that I took while traveling um, all of, to all of these artists' residencies and literary arts fellowships. And, you know, what really intrigued me, too, about using images in a poetry collection was the opportunity for selfic crisis. And so the poem becomes a kind of dialogue or conversation between parts of the self or parts of consciousness. And that idea of the split subject just really fueled my writing and was very 
um, intriguing to me. Something that people don't know about Angel of the North is that all of those quotes that you see, the quoted material in the titles, those are bits of found language that I pulled from poems that I love. And so the, the text not only becomes a conversation between parts of the self or parts of consciousness, but a conversation between the self and a kind of inherited tradition. And so I was just really, really excited to explore this idea of the poem as a space for collaboration and oftentimes multiple different types of collaboration simultaneously as well. Great. And um, I actually wanted to ask you exactly about that. I'm really interested in this question of, um, let's say, social authorship, no, and, and, and hybridity. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk about other books that were mentor texts that guided you, um, which, I mean, there are explicit citations, like you said, but even if you're not necessarily citing, you're in conversation with, you're building on, um, because, I mean, it seems to me that this is kind of as potentially um, radical as a kind of uh, critique in a positive sense, no, as a kind of constructive um, part of your project. Um, and it goes hand in hand with um, with intervening in, in other texts. So you have these these, these texts, um, which, which the book is definitely in dialogue with. Um, and yeah, I was hoping you could you could tell us about some of them. Yeah, so um, in terms of mentor texts, there's such a long and varied tradition of this idea of poetic voice as a kind of alterity or otherness that speaks through the poet. And so that was part of what I was thinking about when I was bringing in all of this found text that, you know, we don't necessarily, um, you know, own language and we can't profess, you know, authorship over a text when it's written in collaboration with, you know, this artistic inheritance, the, this larger cultural imagination, and um, all of the kinds of texts that populate, you know, the psyche, right? Freud always spoke about the, the psyche as a kind, of, a kind of text. And so um, I was really intrigued by, you know, from Homer with the muses as this kind of alterity or otherness that speaks through the writer to HD, thinking of the unconscious mind as an otherness or alterity that speaks through the poet, to um, Jack Spicer conceiving of the poem as radio waves from outer space. I was really interested in the kind of next iteration of this, this idea or this tradition as collaboration, uh, because so much of the time working on collaborations, the, you know, there's there's two writers working together and the collaboration becomes this third space that neither one of them can profess ownership over, but they both participate in fully. Um, and even in like John Gallagher and GC Waldrop's Your Father on the Train of Ghosts, um, they actually had like certain poems that John wrote, certain poems that GC wrote, and certain poems that were literally in the third voice. So they belong to both of the collaborators and neither of them. And so I was really just trying to explore what this third voice um, that arises out of collaboration 
looks like in solo practice, right? When you're writing alone. Yeah, and, and I think that speaks also directly to what you were saying before, really, about using other media as well, because, I mean, those moments of what you described as um, self, self-exphrasis, no, when you're observing the self, observing something, no, they also allow for some kind of alterity or otherness to come to come forward and also surprises in in what the language is then doing right because in a way you're having to relinquish control either because you're dealing with uh another text or because you're dealing with another another medium of some kind no and so uh, that that process of um which we keep coming back to really but of translating or putting yourself in conversation with 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 something else means that the language becomes strange to itself, no? Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that strangeness, uh, it's also part of the experience of travel as well. So this idea of self crisis and collaboration, you know, for a travelogue seemed really fitting um, as a kind of vehicle for the story. Um, the poet Eva Heisler has a wonderful interview that she gave in Tupelo Quarterly where she talks about travel as the experience of seeing the self made strange or experiencing the self as foreign. And I think that that is, you know, that experience involving and implicating the reader in that experience is something that um, I was trying to get at through form and through those kinds of technical or stylistic choices. Right. It also seems kind of, uh, formal as in temporal to me as well, because uh, travel necessitates this kind of delayed understanding. No, you're, you're somewhere and then you're somewhere else and then you understand where you were before. And I think this, 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 this speaks really clearly to, um, to what we were talking about earlier, which is these kind of marginal or paratextual uh, tools that you put in place that, create this kind of delay you know so, so the act of interpretation is is kind of willfully arriving late at the scene you know and trying to trying to uh understand uh after a narrative has already put in place you no know? um and in that sense it's always challenging or pushing against um uh the the, the dominant narrative that's that's already there you no know? because it's it's arriving late i don't know if for you it feels like something i mean something to do with um uh the time required i guess to, to kind of reflect on and mediate um an experience but i i think if when i was reading through the, the the book it really it really gives you this this sense of um distance from uh uh uh, and a narrative that would be too dominant and too immediate and, and too violent, no? It's a kind of uh, taking a step back to, to construct something different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the relationship between, you know, experimental forms and temporality in poetry is, is so interesting and so charged. And, you know, just thinking about you know, how time works and daylight has already come. I was really inspired by um, both Julia Kristeva's essay, Women's Time, and um, the great modernist poet H.D., um, her feminist epic, Helen in Egypt. 
And what HD does um, in Helen in Egypt is so incredible because she allows, through her use of experimental forms, the poems um, have these little prose vignettes, and then they're followed by lines of poetry. And what she does with this form is she really allows two distinct temporal moments to exist side by side and illuminate and call one another into question. And so this juxtaposition of two different moments in time becomes a really powerful vehicle for social commentary and cultural critique. And for HD, these two moments she's juxtaposing are Helen of Troy and the Trojan War and World War One, and her experience in psychoanalysis. And what this kind of juxtaposition reveals or shows is that, um, you know, this kind of masculine war culture has, you know, brought about not only violence, but a really specific way of dealing with and thinking of time. Um, so she kind of hypothesizes that, you know, in order to kind of fuel masculine war culture, people have always conceived of time as being linear. And that's really, you know, foundational. And so when you think of time as like circular recursive, the way she does through form in her poetry, it becomes um, a way of not only offering a feminist critique of history and time in historical narratives, but also a way of, you know, creating social change going forward. And so it really becomes a poetics of social justice. And that was something I really emulated in my poems that by, you know, using form to juxtapose history and modernity and to kind of collapse time in a way, it becomes a vehicle for not only social commentary, but hopefully change in the discourse going forward. Right. I mean, I think the opening line, though, is this book has only circles. So there's this this sense of resisting a kind of um, linear, propulsive, and 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 violent temporality. HG is actually <clears throat> a great place um, or a great person with which to start um, a slightly different uh, conversation. Which is, you know, if we think of HG as being accused of um, uh, writing in a way that's obscure or riddling or vague, no? Um, uh, I think we share an interest in the importance of refusal and uh, reticence in, in feminist poetics and the capacity of poetic language to resist dominant modes of interpretation, understanding and appropriation. So can you talk about uh, difficulty also, in 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 your work and in and in work that um, you're you're drawn to. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about this. Um, one of my favorite like mentor texts is Sarah Vapp, um, "The End of the Sentimental Journey," and what she argues in this really transformative feminist text is that. The way women's bodies are constructed in language is extremely similar to the way that um, innovative texts by women are constructed in language. And so there's this idea that, you know, a poem should give in to the reader at, at the right moment. It should be easy, but not too easy. And all of these kinds of very problematic 
um, you know, assumptions get thrown around. And so I think that there is a way that in feminist texts, um, the refusal to conform to, you know, these ideas of accessibility becomes not only a feminist gesture, but a radical separatist gesture. And so when you have a text by like a feminist author that is intentionally difficult, um, that says, you know, this text was never intended for you, um, it really becomes a powerful critique of, you know, the kind of expectations surrounding women's writing. And so that was something that I was very inspired by, you know, this idea of textual difficulty as a kind of feminist gesture. Wonderful. Um, there's an amazing phrase in, in Women and Ghosts, which I noted down, which is, uh, when did language grow hostile towards me? Um, and I wanted to ask you about that idea, uh, almost in closing, actually, of, of, of hostility and language. Is language always hostile and that it's unruly and dangerous and unconscious? Or um, is it that you're searching for language or forms that seem less hostile to certain kinds of of um of stories um but yeah it's a line that really struck me actually when i was when i was reading it and so i wanted to 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 end by talking about the book um and and, and asking you about that that phrase yeah i'm so glad you asked about that because i'm really intrigued by the ways that you know, grammar and the kind of implicit causal chains in grammar. Like, you know, if you have a subject verb object construction, there's a very um, specific kind of causal chain that's being described. I'm really intrigued by how language implies a kind of logic and the ways that this logic is frequently arising from a historically male and historically Western tradition. And so by questioning the kind of structures of language and their implicit um, logic or reasoning, what it means to make sense in language and all, all of these kinds of things, um, you're really questioning the, the power structures that are embedded or enacted within language. And so when I, when I was speaking about language growing hostile, it was definitely coming from this place of feeling um, othered within language as, as a female practitioner, as a feminist practitioner, and trying to carve a space through, you know, innovative forms and by kind of embracing or fostering freedom in language where, you know, we can have other alternative, uh, maybe more just or more true ways of organizing or structuring lived experience. Great. Um, maybe we can we can uh, come towards the end here, but and I want to ask you uh, in closing what you are working on at the moment. Uh, if you have any uh, projects uh, on the go, and and yeah, where you think writing might take you in the in the next few months. Yeah. So in terms of future projects, I'm editing a volume of scholarly essays for Roman and Littlefield which is called Trespassing in the Archive, Poetry and Conversation with History. And I'm also editing a collection of essays um, by writers called Conversations, Conversations with Writers About Community, and it's coming out from Tupelo Press. 
And what I'm really excited about with this conversations with writers about community um, collection is that, you know, so much of the time writers, when they're in MFA programs or they're in school, they think that teaching is the only path. But this book really explores the possibilities for leadership and generosity and, you know, community stewardship within academia and outside of its boundaries and how the arts can kind of foster this leadership and generosity and community stewardship. So each essay in the volume is accompanied by exercises that can be done uh, by writers in a, like an MFA program or an undergraduate course or by like nonprofits, right? And they can be used by nonprofit leaders um, to build community through the arts and through uh, poetry within their organizations. So hopefully it will be, you know, a really useful resource for opening up possibilities for young people in terms of what, you know, we call the alt-app um, careers. Um, so maybe looking outside of or beyond academia to be fulfilled and be creative. Sounds wonderful. Uh, Christina, thank you very much for joining us today on New Books in Poetry. Um, and uh, thank you for listening.